Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Ambassador. And if you have a Bible or you want to grab the Bible in the pew in front of you, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel will also, because we're going through a large section of Scripture, um, we'll be in multiple chapters. But we're also, um, if you're going to open your Bibles, put your finger in the book of Proverbs as well. We're walking through the life of David in this series called The Pursuit. And today's passage describes the famous friendship, we're talking about friendship, between Jonathan and David, King Saul, king over Israel, his son Jonathan, the heir to the throne, and his best friend David. In the end, the big idea is this. A life of significance, a life of significance requires forging great friendships. You need great friendships. You need friendships to support you. You need peers. You need people around you who know the real you. And a life of significance in God's eyes, meaning um, getting to where God wants you to be, will require forging great friendships. Every culture puts friendship on the back burner. C.S. Lewis wrote about friendship in a thing called The Four Loves, a book called The Four Loves, and he made the point that friendship is the only love that has uh, no biological necessity. There's nothing about friendship that quickens the pulse or turns you red in the face. Romantic love has a chemical urge, right? Family love is how you kind of survive because someone has to rear you. Even neighbor love is important because it keeps you from being hurt by someone who lives next to you. But friendship love, though it's important, vitally important, described in the Proverbs and throughout uh, sections of Scripture, is important but has no kind of chemical urge. It never forces itself on you but is still valid and important. C.S. Lewis in, in The Four Loves also wrote that friendship is largely unnecessary. It's like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things that gives value to your survival. So like if a zombie apocalypse happens, no one's going to say, oh no, someone do ballet, you know, because if you're trying to live, no one says, somebody play the saxophone, we're about to die. No one ever says that. Friendship love never has a chemical urge. It's like art. It makes your life beautiful, but it doesn't have in and of itself any survival value. If you look at the top 100 songs that are written, uh, how many songs in the top 100 today are written about friendship? None, right? We live in an individualistic culture that values romance and love and pleasure, but not friendship love because every culture puts friendship on the back burner. Traditional cultures value family and having kids and your siblings, but not friendship. Uh, socialist cultures value your neighborly, civic relationships. Busy people don't have time for friendship. Mobile people in our very mobile society today don't want to put down roots for fear that they'll develop a friendship and then just have to break that friendship. If you're trying hard to raise high-performing kids, Chances are you put friendship on the back burner because you're always driving your kids around. There's that age where your kids get to whatever it is, 12, 13, 14 through 17, where you are primarily a chauffeur, uh, trying to be a godly parent and while also being a chauffeur. There's always these things urging us to put friendship on the back burner. But what we'll see in 1 Samuel 18, 19, 20, and 23 in select script, uh, scriptures lining out the life of David and his friendship with Jonathan is that in order to get where God wants you to be, you need to forge great friendships. So here's the story. Chapter 18. David and Jonathan become friends in chapter 18. And in this stage of 1 Samuel, Saul's kind of on the decline. And King David is on the rise because chapter 17 was the whole David and Goliath thing. 
And so at the beginning of chapter 18, Jonathan develops this friendship. He makes a covenant friendship with David. And uh, so, so Jonathan states, I'm going to be your friend. And that's how friendships work, right? You can't force a friendship. You have to kind of find a friendship. Like some of the best friends that you have, I bet it went something like this. You went to a dinner party, you met someone, and about five minutes in you said, I like that guy. You know, I like you. And then you, uh, you exchange numbers and you, go, and you think, like, oh, we're going to be good friends. Is this like an acquaintance friend or whatever? But all your best friends, there's like an epiphany that happens where you go, I think I'm going to be friends with this person. You find friends. And Jonathan finds David. They become fast friends. But his dad, the king over Israel, is in decline, going crazy, murderous, because Jonathan and Saul both separately see something in David where they think, this person's going to be the king. He is in line. He's, God is moving this person in a direction to be king. But David tells Jonathan one day, I think your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says honestly to David, uh, my dad tells me everything. I don't know why he wouldn't tell me that he's trying to kill you. I'm his confidant. And then, but he trusts David. And so they hatch this plan in chapter 20 when he says, David, you go hide. Go hide in solitude. And then you know there's a feast coming up, and in these feasts, all the different dignitaries and people, the who's who, they all come to these feasts. And if my dad Saul notices that you're not here, then maybe I can kind of read in his reaction that maybe he's angry towards you. And so if my dad notices that you're gone, and he gets frustrated about it as if he had a plan to kill you, then maybe I'll notice it and I'll be able to tell you. And so Jonathan has this plan where he's going to go out and, and where David's hiding, he's going to shoot these arrows. And if he overshoots the target intentionally, then that'll be the signal that David should run away and not come back. But if he uh, hits the target, then uh, everything's fine and David can come out of hiding and, then, uh, and he's fine. So they go to the, the feast. And uh, long story short... Saul gets very angry, and I think Jonathan's trying to read the guy, and then he gets so angry that when Jonathan pipes up, he throws a spear at Jonathan, clear signal that he's angry, tries to kill his own son, and then, uh, so then Jonathan goes out, he shoots the arrows, he gives his weapon to a boy, he sends the boy back to the city, and then he comes out, David comes out from hiding, and then Jonathan and David, they embrace, they weep together, and the text says that David wept even more than Jonathan. And then we see in our story the last interaction. We'll read the, the, the passage. The last interaction between David and Jonathan where Saul says, I see something in you. You will be king and I will be under you. Though I'm the rightful king, I will serve under you. So let's read our passage. Selected passages from this story and we can piece it together um, from, our, from our text. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong by his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory over Israel, for all Israel. 
and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. For Samuel 20, 41 through 42. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then, ki- then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness before you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. First Samuel 23. David learned that Saul had come out to take his life, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Haresh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over all Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Haresh. In talking about friendship, we're going to see kind of three things that we have to understand to have a friendship that leads you into the calling that God has for your life, a forged friendship that's a great friendship. Three uh, things we have to understand. One, the need for friendship. Two, the forging of friendship. And three, the power for friendship. The need for friendship, the forging of friendship, and the power for friendship. You need friends. There are reasons why cultural commentators have written books like The Friendless American Male, because they see a trend, they see an issue in our culture that we are friendless people, we are very independent, we're into our own thing and our own story, but our stories need to intersect if you want to be the person that God wants you to be, illustrated in our story. You need friends. We need godly friendships because they help us pursue our calling And specifically, they help us through suffering in a unique way that other loves, romantic love, acquaintance love, neighbor love, cannot do. Uh, Hannah and I have this kind of funny little interaction illustrating her friendship with her best friend, Lindsay. Let's just call her Lindsay. Well, that is actually actually her name. I don't think she'll watch this or listen to it. So um, this is a stage of my relationship with Hannah where we were dating, and I was looking for excuses to hang out with this girl that I really liked. And so I invited Hannah to hang out with me to float down the Kern River, which is in Bakersfield, where we lived at the time. And the Kern River is known for being kind of a dangerous river. You have to be a local to kind of know where to get in, where to get out, because um, a lot of people die. And they warn you on TV commercials all the time about don't die in the Kern River. That's like the theme of the commercials. So uh, I invited Hannah to hang out with me in the Kern River. It's really fun. You kinda, it's, it's like the best free thing to do in Bakersfield. You jump in, and there are three rules to surviving the Kern River. Stay to the left. Like, as long as you're floating, everything on the left is safe. Everything on the right is like nasty rapids and branches. Stay to the left. Uh, we're floating down on like little car inner tubes, you know, like with a cooler of like Kool-Aid or whatever, like to drink, and like a car inner tube. And next to us, while you're floating down the Kern River, are like professional guided rafting tours. People are wearing like helmets and life vests, you know, and then we're just like, what's up? So stay to the left. If you fall off, if you hit anything crazy, just grab your inner tube because there was no other thing that you could do to kind of float. 
Um, and then thirdly, if you fall off and then you lose your inner tube, stay to the middle and like keep swimming because if you swim to the side and grab a branch, if you don't know this, like if you grab a branch on the side of a rushing river, the water pushes you down. You think you're going to pull yourself out, but it doesn't work that way. You just kind of sit there and the water washes over you and that's how people really get hurt on the Kern River. So I invited Hannah to go rafting with me, and then I'm not sure if the understanding was unclear that I thought this was like a date, but she invited her best friend, Lindsay. <laughs> so Lindsay came, and, uh, and it was fun, but it was like, okay, cool, you're harshing my, my uh, plans here. So uh, we, I sit in the parking lot of the, the spot. Lindsay, I'm already frustrated at Lindsay. Lindsay three rules. What are they? I told you on the drive over. She goes, stay to the left, hold on to your inner tube. If I lose my inner tube, keep swimming. And okay, so we get into the river. Uh, Hannah has her inner tube. I've got my inner tube. And then Lindsay, uh, I think Lindsay brought like an inflatable mattress. It was ill-equipped. She, she starts floating down the river and she was mad because the water was cold. And then I was like, you, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So she was floating down the river. She looks at me like, why am I being drawn over to the right side of the river? And I was like, Lindsay, you have to swim. She goes, immediately goes to the right and not to the left. Remember I said like rule number one was like stick to the left, right? So she goes to the right. She immediately goes over like the hugest rapid at the beginning of this river. And while she's going over the rapid, she's looking at me like, what are you going to do about this? And I was like, Lindsay, please. So then she immediately falls off of her mattress because she's got her hands up like this, like, what are you going to do? She falls over. She just gets, like, like hit hard in these rapids or whatever. She comes up, you know, she's just, like, soaked. Her inner tube or her inflatable mattress is, like, 100 feet down the river. She immediately starts screaming at me, swims over to the right side of the river, and grabs a branch. <laughs> and the entire time I was just yelling instructions at her with my cooler from my inner tube, and I was like, Lindsay, stay to the left. And she was like, what? And then I said, Lindsay, hold on to your thing. She loses it. Lindsay, swim. She grabs onto the branch. And while I was in, uh, yelling instructions at Lindsay, Hannah noticed that her friend was in trouble. And so I'm not sure if you noticed, my wife is from Africa. Like she has like jungle skills. And so she, she uh, notices her friend in trouble. She immediately swims towards the rapids grabs her inner tube, like stands up on a rock, frisbees her inner tube at her best friend. She, Lindsay misses it. And then she, she, just, she dives against the current, swims against the current to go grab her friend. She grabs her friend around the neck and is like, let go of the branch! And then they both float down the river and they swim together. Okay, this is like an illustration of the right way and the wrong way to be a friend to someone that you love, right? From my place of privilege, I just yelled instructions at Lindsay on good choices that she should make in her life. While Hannah, in her love for her best friend, uh, left her place of comfort to go be with her friend who was in the midst of suffering. A stupid story, but a serious point. You need friends. You need friends. <laughs> you need friends to grab you by the neck sometimes and say, let go of the branch. You're making a choice that's hurting yourself, and, and you're going to pay for it. And we're, we're in it together, but you need to make better choices. And then you need a friend to be with you in the midst of that. You need a friend to save you. We all need those things. And David had that. In short, uh, David would not have been David without Jonathan. I mean, yeah, with God, but he would not have been, like, God ordained his friendship with David. And Jonathan helped David get where God wanted him to be. You need those kinds of friends. And you need those friends in the midst of suffering and trials. So 
I know there's a question in the audience. When you talk about good, valuable, godly, great friendships, you have to kind of acknowledge, I think, that they're not found every day. Not every acquaintance that you have will be a great friend. And so if you're asking the question, what, what do I do to get friends if I don't really have these close friends? Maybe I am so focused on my kids. Maybe I am so busy. Maybe I am dealing with some insecurities that have kept me from developing great godly friendships. Uh, some pastoral advice. You can't force friendships. You have to find friendships. You have to put yourself into a place and be the kind of person that can be a trustworthy friend, a caring friend, someone who thinks outside of themselves. It's a mutual thing. It's a very 50-50 thing in terms of friendship. But you have to find it. You have to put yourself in a place where you can meet someone. And C.S. Lewis again says in The Four Loves that friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. You have to discover those friendships and find them. And once you find them, Great friendships do not happen by accident. You have to forge friendships. And that's the meat of our discussion today, how to forge great friendships, because you need them. And now with intentionality, how do you take good acquaintances or friends that you've got in your small group Bible study and forge them into great friendships? So Proverbs 27, 17, in terms of forging great friendships says, as iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. We're obviously stealing that metaphor to say you shape metal, you pound metal, you, you put some heat to it. And because of all of those things, the intentionality and the heat and the time and the trial of melting metal and shaping it like a sword, then you, you have the result that you're looking for. And the proverb says, as iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. It's, it requires two things to do the sharpening. Friendships are forged through consistency, Candor, meaning authenticity, and care. Consistency, candor, and care. You'll notice that um, sometimes your family members love you, but your friends actually like you. And that's the thing that the Proverbs continue to say about friendship. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Operative word, Friends stick, friends cleave, friends covenant, friends are those great friends that we're talking about, a few people in your life that are those godly support for you in the calling that God has for you. And in the midst of suffering, they are consistent because they stick. It would be no surprise to you to find out that if we're honest, most of our friendships are not consistent friendships. They're not sticky friendships. They're consumer friendships. I mean, when I go to the store, uh, uh, let's use coffee for an example because I'm a fan of coffee. And if I go get coffee and I, ha I always have a great friendship with the people that I buy coffee from and so we have a friendship that uh, extends from cashier to everyday coffee purchaser. And uh, I'm always friendly with those people. But if I showed up one day and said, listen, enough is enough. We're, we're close enough. I'm done paying for coffee. That would be an unrealistic expectation, <laughs> right? They would say, actually, the reason I smile at you is because you're paying for the coffee. So um, that's a business relationship. That's a consumer relationship, and that's okay. But most people are surprised to even like, think through when maybe they go through a suffering, or maybe they stop providing the status or the, the, the fun that they used to provide for some of the acquaintances they have in their life, that oftentimes when things get hard and you stop providing things for other people, but you're maybe in a season where you really need something, you find out that a lot of your friends are consumer friends. A lot of your friends are friends with you because they get something out of that relationship. 
and almost kind of like weeds away the true friends that you really have. But all of those great friends are always consistent. They're always there for you. They are always sticky. They stick closer than a brother. If you have a sin problem in your life, or let's say your friend has a sin problem, and you think to yourself, I don't want to say anything about the sin that's destroying their life. I don't want to say anything about how they treat their spouse. I don't really want to speak into that because I'm not sure how they'll react. Or I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if it's my place to say something. I know we're close, but I'm not sure if, it's, if I'm able to comment on how they spend their money. Then what you're saying is, I like them, but I'm not willing to go through an uncomfortable conversation for their benefit. Chances are, in that relationship, you're a consumer friend. Because those friends are consistent. Chances are, if you gossip about people that are your friends, that that inconsistency in your trustworthiness is an example that you might be a consumer friend. And it can even be psychological. You might be a consumer friend because the person is really good looking. And you like being with that person. It makes you feel cuter. When you, or it makes you feel more masculine. It makes you feel cooler when you're with this good looking person. And that's a consumer friendship if it doesn't go deeper than that. Or it might just be the fun that you have with that person. It might be that they always be by dinner. <laughs> we have these consumer friendships, but those will not get you to the calling that God has on your life. They have to be consistent friendships. Great friendships are consistent. They also are full of candor and honesty. If you think about 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, let me get back to my passage in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. Can we throw it up on the screen, actually? So um, you'll notice that King Saul, I'm sorry, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. They had that fast friendship and they co- covenanted together. And you'll notice in verse 4, Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and then he gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his belt. He literally saw something in David. He said, God's doing something big in your life, and I can help you. And he quite literally equipped David with his robe, robed him in his friendship covenant. And then he gave him his bow, and he gave him his sword, and he gave him his belt, and he gave him his tunic. I don't know what else was left, some sandals. But he gave all of those things to David, quite literally equipped him to be the person that God wanted him to be. With his friendship love, there was... There was nothing left for Jonathan to give. So in a sense, I don't want to over-metaphor the situation, but in a sense, he was just completely made bare before his friend. And that's what good friendships are like. They became one in spirit. Take my clothes. And that's how good friends are as well. Uh, You have to have candor in your friendships. So let's apply this. If you want to be authentic and transparent and develop great friendships, then your feelings and your emotions need to be made bare to have those friendships. David and Jonathan wept together. They kissed each other. Commentators on the passage were quick to note, maybe in a Western society, that it might be odd for friends to kiss each other. And they made note that in a society where you're completely secure with your masculinity because you you have so much courage that you're a warrior and you've lived the life of a warrior, that maybe in the culture it freed them up to be more emotionally available. And maybe the application for us is that we've got a lot of men who aren't totally secure about their friendship, aren't totally secure about how much courage they have, and so they're not able to be as emotionally available because they're not sure if they're men. That's another sermon for another day. But we have to be made bare, authentic, um, transparent with our feelings. 
You have to be transparent with your everyday life. Like, you don't clean up the house when your good friend comes over because you don't need to impress them. You don't dress up and you don't do your hair and shave before your friend comes over because they're close friends. You have to be transparent with your decisions, right? If you decide to move away and change jobs or, or uh, make some big life decision but you don't talk to your friends about it, they'll wonder if they're really that close with you. And you have to be, and I keep coming back to this, you have to be transparent about your flaws. Hebrews 3 says, encourage one another daily so that no one may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The author of Hebrews notices that your sin in your life, one of the primary things that sin does in your life is it makes you feel like you're not that sinful. And so sin hides sin. It pushes it down deep. It, it motivates your heart in a way that's not even like on the surface. And so Hebrews 3 says, encourage each other regularly. In other words, keep a constant open dialogue about sin's deceitfulness in your life. And if you believe the gospel and you know that you're forgiven when you don't deserve it and Christ paid the penalty for your sin, then there's nothing else for you to hide because by nature of being a Christian, you've already said, I'm deeply flawed and cannot save myself and I need Jesus as my Savior and I need Jesus as my Lord. And continuing to grow in your faith will always involve that every day. And so your friendships, your real friendships should always involve the transparency and a regular conversation about sin's deceitfulness where you say, am I, am I greedy? Is it weird? Am I greedy or am I just feeling guilty? Or am I materialistic? Am I, am I gossip? Am I being motivated by guilt or fear or anger more than Christ's love? And that should be no sweat if in those moments we're believing the gospel and saying, I'm deeply flawed I'm only saved through Jesus. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing, no appearances to keep up. And so therefore, I'm freed up to be completely honest about my cruddy motivations and my ungodly habits with my friends so I can be encouraged to fight sin's deceitfulness. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It's an enemy. It's an enemy that always treats you like you're perfect for the teenagers in the room. It's an enemy that only posts, love you, love you, heart, 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 heart. You look amazing. You're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Why is that such a common thing? Like, it's an enemy that only, you're perfect. How many 16-year-old uh, people post on Instagram, you're perfect? Okay. Like, it's an enemy that says, it's your wife's fault. You're justified. So, keep an open conversation about sin's deceitfulness. And then care. I want to read you two of the funniest Proverbs I have uh, in the Bible to me. Two of the funniest Proverbs about caring for people. Proverbs 25, 17 says, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house too much of you and they will hate you. It's true, right? It's true. Proverbs 27, 14, if anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Isn't that true? They're both illustrations of somebody not caring for their neighbor, not paying attention to the emotional needs of their neighbor. It's someone not being able to recognize when someone is hurt. And I just want to close with this, that if you have forged a friendship that's consistent and that's candor, has, uh, candor, has transparency and has care, then if I were to end the sermon now and just tell you, hey guys, go be good friends, I think we would leave here with a weight. Because if I asked you, can you guys be good friends? 
All right, ready, break. The answer would be no. We need the power to live selflessly. We need, on, speaking of sin's deceitfulness, something to combat the selfishness and the individualism of our own hearts. We need Jesus to motivate good friendship. That's the power of friendship. Jonathan, p- pay attention to, or like, put your head into his world. He could have sided with Saul and become king. He could have kicked David out and said, I just uh, eliminated your rival, and he could have become king. He could have sided with David and pushed his dad out. But Jonathan, in the beginning of 2 Samuel, to his own demise, kept a covenant friendship with David and kept a covenant with his dad. Like the more I read about Jonathan, the more I go, this is a solid guy. And so his unwise, foolish dad, who at this life was in decline and kind of going crazy, his son stuck by him. And he went into a a foolish military uh, conflict on Mount Gilboa and then Jonathan dies with his father in battle in the beginning of 2 Samuel. Jonathan kept his covenant. And Jonathan, while he was the ultimate friend in our story, points us then to a passage of Scripture where Jesus says, I'm your friend. John 15, he says, My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is looking at these like flawed sinners who he knows are about to abandon him. And he says, you're not servants because we're in business together. You're my friends. Jonathan risked his life for David to become who God made him to be. And pay attention that Jesus gave his life for that very purpose for your sake, Christians. That Jesus gave his life for you to live the life that God has called you to be. Jonathan created a covenant with David and Jonathan clothed David in his friendship love. And Jesus clothes us and equips us with a new identity so we can go through suffering together. Jonathan loved David in the midst of probably the most evil that he ever had to fight in Saul uh, constantly trying to kill him. And then Jonathan's love equipped him and changed his identity. It was the first moment, it's the turning point in the story of 1 Samuel where David starts to look like a king. And when we become Christians and we put our faith in Christ, Jesus in a sense wraps us in that new identity and equips us with that new identity in a way to live our life in Jesus. So we can see ourselves as the son of a king instead of uh, a lowly shepherd type person, a lowly, uh, unworthy person, a younger son looked down on by other people, and then in Christ we're robed and equipped with a new identity to live within that identity. And as it applies to friendship, that new identity allows us to not look to other people for our status, to not use other people for acceptance, but to find our our status and our identity in Christ to find our acceptance in our identity in Christ, to find our security within a God who is powerful and graceful. To the extent that you put on your new identity in Christ, you'll be able to, you'll be freed up to love people with sacrificial friendship love. Friends stick. And when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at a bunch of people who had betrayed him and were previously his friends and were clearly consumer friends. 
And in the greatest act of love and mercy, Jesus Christ on the cross stayed. He stuck. He remained there until his death for the good of his friends that had betrayed him. And so it is with us, a bunch of deeply flawed, selfish consumer sinners loved with God's grace and mercy. Heart-changing friendship from Jesus. He lived out that covenant so that we can look at that relationship and then let that kind of like apply into how we develop those friendships as well. Let's pray.